Hey guys, what's going on? It's Jeff. A quick note before the show begins. The audio from these podcasts mostly come from live video YouTube streams on my channel. They may vary in quality from show to show and reference visual content not described to you, the listener. I'm sorry about that. If you prefer video to go with this audio, head over to youtube.com backslash from us, F-R-U-M-E-S-S for the whole enchilada. Who doesn't like a whole enchilada anyway? What's going on, everybody? How are you tonight? Welcome to another show. Uh, Steve is already in the house. How you doing, Steve? Mr. Asher. Say, my chap, what tomfoolery is this? We're going to find out. We're most certainly going to find out. Now, you may recall over the summer, we've done another article on language and accents and things. It was about the Italian accent. It was from a fantastic article, also from the Atlas Obscura, the same place we also read from last night. And it was called, it's like called uh, Gabagoo. I think it's called Gabagoo, how, Cap, no, how Capicola became Gabagoo. And it's just really interesting, man. It's like, this is the type of history that I just really uh, enjoy. I, I, I thoroughly enjoy sort of um, learning about this kind of stuff. This is the stuff that I find fascinating. We get older in life. When we're younger, we may not be so into history, but when we get older in life, when I, you know, as I've gotten older and I start asking myself and like wanting to know more about the world, you know, uh, <laughs> Jade, what gaba going on? <laughs> I like that. That's funny. Uh, you know, you start to wonder to yourself, like, hey, like, why is this like this? Or why is this like this? You start going down you know, Wikipedia rabbit holes and whatnot. Um, as I said yesterday, if you missed yesterday's show about bone bread, that's right, bones, I mean, bread that is made out of bones, I highly suggest you go and watch it because uh, we had a great time, um, despite the macabre subject matter. Um, tonight's, tonight's subject matter is a little bit lighter. As I said, we're talking about accents. What, what we're talking about is Hollywood accents. And I know it's like, why that? That's so like weird. Like, that's kind of like, I don't want to know about Hollywood accents. Well, here's the thing though. You know, if you watch a movie before 1940, people talk differently. And it's not like, you know, not to say that I was, I've been watching a lot of newsreels per se. Like, I don't know how people really talked outside of the movies. Like the movies are really such a strong connection to our past, especially of those decades. Because like, you know, again, you don't really have much TV. Um, like the way that you're really, and if you're not watching newsreels, the way you're going to get some inclination of people and their vernacular is to watch movies. So movies end up kind of becoming uh, time capsules, capsules, if you if you uh, would imagine. Uh, and as uh, Biz says here, it's the trans. Uh, uh, it's known also also as the transatlantic or the mid-Atlantic accent. It's elegant. I didn't know it was called the transatlantic accent. I didn't even know that there was a specific accent that I should or should not be looking for. To me, 
I always thought of it as just that's just the way old people talk. They talk like that. So, you know, and I guess what it is, it's based on a fake British accent. So that's what we're reading about tonight. Can't all be uh, skeleton breads. This is uh, this piece is called How a Fake British Accent Took Old Hollywood by Storm. The story behind the strange way that Catherine Hepburn and others spoke. That includes Clark Gable and uh, Ingrid, um, what's her face? Ingrid Bergman. And such. So this is by Dan Noshowitz. Uh, and it's from October 27th, 2016. Here's Catherine uh, Hepburn and Cary Grant in the film, The Philadelphia Story. They were in a bunch of films together. I've seen, uh, it's either, maybe it's It Happened One Night or Bringing Up Baby, I think has Clark Gable and, and Catherine Hepburn. And it's a great, great film. I'm not sure which one, but um, kind of like a romantic comedy from the 40s, I guess. Closest thing you could. You know, I love I love watching old movies, especially noirs. It's just so interesting. You get like transposed into this like world, this world long forgotten. You know, um, I, I can't quite explain it. It's like a really nice way to sort of um, time travel, I guess. If you've ever seen a movie made before 1950, you're familiar with the accent used by actors like Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn and Ingrid, Ingrid Bergman, a sort of high-pitched, indistinctly accented way of speaking that also pops up in recordings of politicians like FDR, and that's what, you know, like, talk like this, blah, 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 and writers like Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley Jr. It's easy to gloss over this today because movies have captured a few different accents that aren't really presented today, like the Borscht Belt Jewish accent of Mel Brooks, we're going to do a whole separate thing on that. Uh, that's, yeah, going to talk about that. And the old New York toity uh, toid street accent. Toity toid. Hey, Poyle. Well, you know, my my Nana, my, my mom's parents, they're from Brooklyn. And they, you know, they're Brooklyn Jews. And they have that, they do have that kind of toity toid sort of accent thing. Or they did. Like my grandmother, she when she never used, put an A at the end of anything. It was always E-R. You want to go get a slice of pizza, you know, like that kind of thing. Coffee was coffee, coffee. Um, but the accent we're talking about here is among the weirdest ways of speaking in the history of the English language. It's not entirely natural, for one thing. The form of the accent was firmly guided by certain key figures who created strict rules that were aggressively taught. So this was something that was mentally taught. There are rules that govern the way of speaking. It's not just, you know, um, it's not just a regional sort of dialect that that slowly evolved over time. This is a uh, something with a pre-design, and it also va vanished quickly. It also vanished quickly within the span of perhaps a decade, which might be related to the fact that it isn't entirely natural. Because if it was, perhaps people would hold on to it uh, longer um, in that kind of way. Here's this is Catherine. Hep um, I kind of should I play it? I just had a whole copyright issue with my Scream thing. I did a I did a a, a, a podcast about Scream and uh, I had an issue with it on YouTube. Really, really frustrating. Really, really annoying. Today, this accent is sometimes called the Mid Atlantic accent, which is deeply offensive to those like me from the actual Mid Atlantic region of the United States. What is the Mid Atlantic region? I guess. New York, New Jersey, I don't know. Um, let's see what they say. Uh, what that name means in this case is that the accent can be placed 
somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, halfway between New England and England. Ah, that's what it means. It's popular. So that's what they mean by like fake British accent, that sort of thing. Its popularity, though, in pop culture can be tied to one American woman of very and a very strange set of books. In the 1800s, once relationships with England began to normalize following the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812, the cities of Philadelphia, Boston, and especially New York City became the new country's most powerful. Financial and cultural elites began constructing their own kind of vaguely British institutions, especially in the form of prestigious private schools. And those schools had uh, elocution, elocution classes. What is elocution? Let's look this up. Jeff, look it up. The skill of clear and expressive speech, especially of distinct pronunciation and articulation. Okay. Okay. I get it. So you had elocution classes. The entire concept, oh, they define it for you right here. The entire concept of an elocution class is wildly offensive to most of the modern linguists I know for uh, following the rise of the, of super linguist Bill Labrov, Labrov, Labov, in the 1960s, the concept that one way of speaking is better or worse than another is basically anath anathema. What does anathema mean? Let's look that up. Anathema. Anathema, something or someone that one vehemently dislikes. Got it. So it's like saying that this, act, this accent's better than this accent, and this accent is better than this accent. Um. But that wasn't at all the case. Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> but that wasn't at all the case for the rich kids of Westchester County, Beacon Hill, or Main Line. Those would be the homes, the home of elites of New York, Boston, and Philadelphia, respectively. So I, we live, I'm in Westchester County right now. I'm in White Plains within Westchester County. That's really funny. So the rich kids of Westchester County, Beacon Hill is, is Boston. And main line is Philadelphia, respectively. Hmm. Wait, let me read that one more. That would be, that wasn't at all the case for the rich kids. Got it. Um, this is the common from Beacon Hill, Boston in 1905. Uh, there's a long history of dialect features of Southeast England in Eastern New England dialects, tracing back directly to the colonial era writes James Stratford, a linguist at Darth, Dartmouth College, in an email. European settlers throughout New England on the east side of Vermont's Green Mountains tended to stay closer in touch with Boston, which in turn stayed in touch with Southeast England through commerce and education. The upper-class New England accent of that time shares some things with modern New England accents. The most obvious of this is the non, non, God, how do you pronounce that word? Non, I gotta look this up. Oh. Relating to or denoting a dialect or variety of English, and that's rotic. Rotic. This non rotic roticity, which refers to dropping the R sound in words like here and Charles. So, Charles and here. Like, you know, the Boston thing. That's the, bo the Boston way of talking. 
ka, that kind of thing. But while parts of those accents are natural, some New Yorkers and many Bostonians still drop their R sounds today. The elite Northeastern accent was ramped up artificially by a uh, by a a locution, a locution teachers at boarding schools, Miss Porter's school in Connecticut, where Jackie Onassis, the wife of JFK, was educated, the Groton School in Massachusetts, that's FDR, and St. Paul's School, that's where John Kerry went to school, and others all decided to teach their well-heeled pupils to speak in a certain way, a vaguely Britishy type speech pattern meant to sound uh, uh, aristocratic, excessively proper, and weirdly non-regionally specific. A similar impulse created the British-received pronunciation, the literal Queen's English through RP's roots, arose a bit more gradually and naturally in southeastern England. That is fascinating. So basically, Th this dialect is because of uh, elocution teachers. I just keep butchering that word. I wish I would, someone could pronounce it for me. Elocution, elocution teachers, um, who thereby inform. And then what happens is that gets broadcasted in movies across the world. These, you know, these kids become actors, and then suddenly, like people, like it becomes like a popularized way of speaking. This is the Groton School in Massachusetts. The book that codified the elite Northeastern accent is one of the most fascinating and demanding books I've ever read, painstakingly written by one Edith Skinner. Skinner was an elocutionist, I really wish I never had to say that word again, who decided with what must have been balls the size of Mars to call this accent good speech. Here's a quote from her 1942 book, Speak With Distinction. I'm going to try and read this in what I imagine that accent is. I don't. Good speech is hard to define, but easy to recognize when we hear it. Good speech is a dialect of North American English that is free from regional characteristics, recognizably North American, yet suitable for classic texts, effortlessly articulated and easily understood in the last rows of a theater. So I, I guess I understand it's kind of like trying to create a standard of speech that doesn't that's not anchored down by region. Meaning that if you spoke, I wouldn't know if you came from Boston. I wouldn't know if you came from New York. I wouldn't know where you come from. But it's still, yeah, the idea of like deciding that this is good versus bad is just so ridiculous. Skinner is now woefully outdated, and many of her ideas are so contrary to the way modern linguists think that her book, uh, Skinner is now woefully outdated, and many of her ideas are so contrary to the way modern linguists think that her books are no longer taught. To find a copy of Speak With Distinction, I had to hunt through a performing arts library in New York City's Lincoln Center Plaza. She's what's known now as a linguistic prescriptionist, meaning that she believed in that some variations of English are flat out superior to others and should be taught and valued as such. I mean, come on, she named this accent good speech. So she's basically a speech supremacist, I guess. I didn't know that such a thing existed, but I guess it does. Her influence was felt in filmmaking in very, in a very roundabout way. Film 
began in New York, uh, only moving en masse to Los Angeles in the mid-1910s. Skinner was born in New Brunswick, Canada, but studied linguistics at Columbia and taught drama for many years at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh and Juilliard in New York City, all high elite schools. It was in the Northeast that she created Speaking with Distinction, an insanely thorough linguistic text full of specific ways to pronounce thousands, thousands of different words, diagrams, lessons on the international phonetic al alphabet and exercises for drama students. So imagine for a moment that you are fluent in a, you're fluent in, 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 in the English language, but because you don't use the right accent, you now have to study, you're literally studying English. It's not like lit literature. It's like you're studying English just to be able to speak properly. I mean, I just, that, that seems so bothersome to me. Yep, drama. By this point, movies with sound had begun to hit theaters. And then came the disastrous story of Clara Bow. Bow was one of the silent film, film eras. Oh, I think I know this. I know this story. All right. The disastrous story of Clara Bow. Bow was one of the silent film era's biggest stars, a master of exaggerated expressions. When the talkies came along, this happened in 1928 with the jazz singer. Before 1928, all film was silent. In the middle of 1928, um, Alfred Hitchcock also uh, he he started his film w uh, went from being a silent film to being um, a, a talkie. I believe it's called The Lodger. I think it's called The Lodger. It, um, it's one of the lesser known one of his lesser known films. Uh, Walter White, I'm sorry to hear the vi the video is choppy. It's not choppy by me. I, I'm looking over here right now. I don't see any chop. Sorry, to, sorry that uh, about that. You are in New Zealand on the other side of the world, uh, a full day ahead of us. Maybe that might have something to do with it. I don't know, um, but I'm just going to press pr uh, press forward with the um, broadcast. Um. So yeah, so 1928 is a huge year in cinema. When you know, um, could you imagine like when you think about like things in like dimensional sense of 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 you know in in a dimensional sense. Like you have pictures, moving pictures, and so it's like a flat 2D moving picture. And then suddenly that moving picture is now shaped by sound. And all of a sudden now your sound, uh, sound creates a, a, another dimension of, of, um, of movies. I don't know. It's, I find that fascinating. In any case, let's talk about Clara Bow. Bow was one of the sound film eras. Biggest stars, a massive, a master of exaggerated expressions. When the talkies came along, audiences heard her voice for the first time, and it was a nasal, honking Brooklyn accent. Though the idea that speaking roles killed her career in film is not entirely accurate, there were plenty of other factors ranging from drug problems to insane pressure from film studios. It's certainly true that her career took a nosedive around the time audiences heard her voice possibly creating a cautionary tale for newly heard actors. So it gives some sort of uh, urgency, some sort of precedent for, you know, um, actors to kind of speak with this so-called considered good dialect because they don't want to end up like Clara Bow. And I don't think, I don't think she's the only one. And, you know, I believe, I haven't seen it. The artist, I think, deals with some of the fallout from, 
you know, uh, moving from silent films to talking features. It is now the 1930s, and Edith Skinner is Hollywood's go-to advisor for all things speech-related. So she becomes the, at the epicenter of everything that's going on. And Edith Skinner has extremely strong opinions bred in the elite universities of the Northeast about exactly how people should speak. So she forced her own good speech accents on stars and other voice coaches. So she's infecting the voice coaches with this urgency to use her good dialect. And soon her accent became the most popular accent in Hollywood. Speaking with, and because it's like, again, to go back to the thing about like why, like why did it just suddenly stop? And maybe it, because it wasn't a naturally forming thing, that there's a that really speaks to what we're learning about right now because in order to talk like this you had to be taught and trained in ways that go far and above and beyond what maybe you know a mother might or what a child might naturally pick up from their parents you know there are all these sort of additional rules i guess it could kind of be learned from from you know uh age of a baby if that's all you hear somebody speak then you're just going to copy what they're speaking but um you could, I could, I could also see how it, it sort of died out. Speaking with distinction is incredibly dense, but it's also very thorough. You can see very clearly right there on the beat up pages why Catherine Hepburn speaks the way she does. In good speech, all vowel sounds are oral sounds to be made with the soft palate raised. Imagine thinking about that, thinking about your vowel sounds and how um, they need to be made with your soft palate raised thus the breath flows out through the mouth only imagine like you're just sitting in a room there's no tv there's no records there's no any kind of external media stimuli and you're just like yeah i'm writing a book about how people should talk like <laughs> it just sounds so boring to me um I, I don't know i hope that doesn't make me sound shallow it just seems like uh, like sitting there thinking, uh, the breath throws, flows out through the mouth only rather than through the mouth and the nose, she writes. She capitalizes things a lot. Each vowel sound is called a pure sound. I'm actually guilty of that as well. And the slightest movement about like capitalizing like certain letters to emphasize what it is that I'm saying. And the slightest movement or change in any of the organs of speech during the formation of a vowel will mar its purity. Resulting in, oh my God, I can't pronounce that word. Diphongization diphongization thongization. Diphongization What does that mean? Let's look that one up. That means changing a, value, a vowel into a diphong. I, okay. Right. I guess. I guess. Here's Clara Bow. Clara Bow or Clara Bow, I don't know. Yeah, Clara Bow. In her first talkie called The Wild Party, audiences struggled with her accent. That sucks. She demands that the R sounds should be dropped. Dopped. Dopped. She demands that the ah sound as in chance. What? The ah sound as in chance should be halfway between the American ah and the British ah. Chance. Interestingly, this is very different than the typical New England accent today, which is highly fronted, meaning that the vowel sound is made with the tongue very close to the teeth. In words like father, 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 I don't know. 
I don't know what, I don't know how to speak like this at all. Um, the British in the mid-Atlantic vowel is pronounced with the tongue much further back. She requires that all T sounds be precisely enunciated. Butter cannot sound like butter. Hey, pass me that butter. It's got to sound like butter, as it mostly does in the U.S. Hey, pass me the butter. I, I guess I said but. It's like the first T, I say T, but the second T is a D. Butter, butter. Um, words beginning in wa must be given a guttural hacking noise. So what sounds more like what? What? <laughs> what did you say? She bans all glottal stops. Wow. The cessation of air when you say uh-oh, even between words, as in the phrase, as in, as in this phrase, direct from her book, oh, Eaton, he even heave eels for Edith Healy. <laughs> so is this where, like, good night, New York comes from? Like, that sort of thing? Oh, Eaton, he even heave eels for Edith Healy. Wow. Oh, Eaton, he Edith... <laughs> Try saying that eight times fast. Oh, Eaton. He even heave eels for Edith Healy. I love it. I love it. Uh, go ahead and try to say that with any glottal stops. It's enormously difficult. I don't, I, I don't even know what that means. I don't even know what that means. Uh, she cracks down on the most obvious of regional cues, railing against what is now called the pig pen merger. Okay. Pin pen merger. Today, the pin-pen merger, in which the word pen sounds like pin. Whoa. Pen sounds like pin. It's, very, it's a very easy indicator that a speaker is from, America, from the American South. Yick, the South. That will not do for Edith Skinner, I guess. Um, that is, that's crazy. I just sent that to my friend. Oh, Eaton. He'd even heave eels for Edith Healy. I love it. I love that. Um, so pin, instead of saying pen, you say pin. Hey, pass me that pin over there. I got to write something down with the pin. Um, it's a very easy indicator that the speaker is from the American South. Yeah, right, we already did that. Uh, because Skinner was so influential and her good speech was so prominent in movies, it began to leak out into, into the drama world at large. Other teachers began teaching it. In fact, even up to just a few decades ago, this accent, now called the Mid-Atlantic, was being taught in drama schools. Jaybird Oberski, who teaches acting at Duke University, got his MFA at Carnegie Mellon in 1997. He says the class was amazingly still being taught then. He isn't a fan of the accent. The, um, the Mid-Atlantic accent... Hmm. The mid-Atlantic accent is considered the neutralization of regionalization. Exactly. So you're homogenizing regionality through linguistics. That's what you're doing. You're turning people's, the way people talk, you're, you're making it uniform and having everybody conform so that you can't tell where they come from. The, to, you know, it's interesting. A lot of British actors play Americans in movies specifically because of their ability to sort of um, uh, impart their, their accents. They can do 
They're much more English speakers from other countries have uh, effortlessly been able to adopt a wide variety of English accents in America that even Americans can't do. So they get, you'll be surprised. You see a lot of actors that end up being British uh, despite mostly playing American parts. It's really interesting um, to, to, to note that kind of thing. So, so that's what's kind of having the neutralization of regionalization. It makes sense to bleach out character so that everybody sounds the same. How boring is that? We, it's like, literally, it's like, it's like a form of supremacy. It's like so crazy. Weirdly enough, this accent class was called a neutralization technique at Carnegie Mellon. Theoretically, the idea is that it removes region signifiers like the pin-pen merger. But there is no neutral or accentless accent. You can replace one accent with another. But the idea is that there is some perfect unaccented variety of English. And, oh, no, it says, but the idea that there is some perfect unaccented variety of English is a myth that has long been squashed. So for a while, people thought, like, you could just talk like that with no issue. And that is just not that's just not the case it's not or that 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 it did exist that just like stock english without any sort of inflection simply existed uh this particular accent too is far from neutral it is immediately recognizable and strange a take on the clipped upper class new england accent with even more britishisms tossed into the mix in her efforts to create a neutral accent skinner created one of the most non-neutral accents in the past few centuries isn't that how it always works the, the, you're chasing, you're trying to go to one end of the spectrum and you end up at the other end of the spectrum. The film craze of the mid-Atlantic English was short-lived. By the 1960s, the new Hollywood movement, complete with innovative, gritty directors like Francis Ford Coppola and John Cassavetes, um, began to depict the world as it was rather than the fantasy lives presented by earlier films. That goal necessitated the dropping of the mid-Atlantic accent. There's no point in showing the grim realities of the Vietnam-era America if everyone's going to talk the, uh, uh, like they went to choke Rosemary Hall. Yeah, it just makes sense. So the actors in those films just didn't. And uh, elocution classes at those schools began to be dropped as well. The prestige of non-roticity and other British-related features began to change in the mid-20th century. And scholars suspect it may be due to the role of World War II and American national identity, a new identity on the world stage, no longer so closely tied to England for national identity rights, Stanford. So that's interesting. So America becomes a world power in World War II, and then suddenly they stand on their own national identity they're no longer the British colony that separated themselves, uh, you know, um, 150-ish, 60-ish years prior, you know. The accent vanished quickly, now only surviving as a weird hallmark of that era of filmmaking. The only time you hear it now, really, is if a movie is set in Hollywood in the film industry Prior to 1960, the real mid-Atlantic accent, the accent of Philadelphia and Baltimore, luckily lives on. Um, so isn't that fascinating that, like, it the again, talking about movies kind of being a, a time capsule 
if you will, uh, they 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 sort of have preserved they've preserved this history, this thing that's fallen out of style and that no longer is you know um, uh, embraced or you know utilized in any kind of meaningful way. And yeah, uh, and if you want to hear what that sounds like, go and listen to a clip. I'm I'm in no mood to uh, deal with um, content ID tagging tonight, so I won't. I will tell you we have a lot of stuff coming up. Um, if you are a Patreon or a YouTube member, go and check out the we have a brand new um, Return of Living Dead novelization chapter is up. Um, tomorrow we have the Streaming Evil Live show, so check that out. Uh, I recorded two new podcasts today. One for Dexter's, the, the New Blood season, and uh, Yellow Jackets season one uh, with my friend uh, DJ Horton. So I'm looking forward to that. And uh, on Thursday, we have Sinful Celluloid with uh, Christopher Jimenez. So lots to do this week. Keep your eyes peeled. More announcements and surprises coming along. Thank you so much for tuning in. I just want to let you know that um, the, this channel is brought to you by riotstickers.com, as you can see right here, for $29.50, which is 50% off of $59. Normally, this deal goes for $59, but when you use the promo code PROMISE, you can get 50 vinyl stickers, 3 inch by 3 inch, so that's 9 square inches of real estate for you, whatever the thing is, you can uh, you can get uh, 50 stickers for 29.50, uh, which again, 50% off. You're not going to find a better deal than that, folks. And that's what the promo code from us. The link is in the description and down in this video. Please make sure to like, share, and subscribe. Very important for this channel and the channel's growth. And thank you guys all again. Let's play our little riotstickers.com clip. Yeah, baby. Riot stickers. We are the bomb. Um, so that is it for today's show. Uh, anything else I got to say? I don't think so. So we'll see you tomorrow for the streaming live show. Peace and hair grease. Do you guys know about the Patreon? Let me tell you a little something. Hey, guys. What's going on? It's Jeff. So I've decided to make... A Patreon. What is Patreon? I don't know how to define a Patreon. Let me look it up. Patreon is a membership platform that makes it very easy for creators to get paid for the things that they're already creating. I want to do it full time. I want this to be my full time job. 
in my efforts to make that happen, I've set up this platform. Is it going to work? Is it going to be successful? I don't know, but I would rather try and crash and burn than not try at all. The goal is to create enough passive revenue so that I can continue to do this full time uninterrupted. Why? Because I love to do this. I love creating content. I love making videos. I love shooting films. I love doing podcasts. In case you couldn't tell, I love to talk and I never shut the fuck up. <laughs> so right now I've kept the Patreon incredibly simple. There's two tiers and that may change in the future. The Murdergram is a simple way to extend support for all of the hours and hours of free content on the channel for nothing more than a dollar. 38 cents goes to Patreon. What's a buck 38, eh? It's less than a cup of coffee. But it's a great way that you can show support for very little effort. When you divide that dollar 38 by the hours and hours and hours of time spent listening to this endless drivel of content, the dollar cost average works out. Next up is the YouTube casualty for $6.66. The YouTube casualty is loaded to the gills. Enjoy the archive ad-free as well as ad-free early access to special docu-style podcast videos, music reaction commentaries, and the like a month before they drop on YouTube, loaded with ads, I might add. You're also going to get exclusive content and behind the scenes content that is not available on YouTube or anywhere else. So you get to peek behind the veil. And believe me, there's a couple of choice pieces. Most of all, more than anything, whether you join the Patreon or not, I just wanna thank each and every one of you that comes to the channel, that watches all the shows, that leaves comments, that participates, that subscribes, that's really the most important thing. This is just trying to find a way to earn a living as an artist. And with that, thank you for my TED Talk. Join the Patreon, because we need you! 66 cents.